Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trek Experts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at TrekspertsPlus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. And, you know, you're talking, I love how, you know, because you've gone on to do work outside of acting with veterans. And I love you give these speeches about what America means. You know, and how exciting you have that great moment where you're talking about how exciting it is to be in the seat of our, our democracy, and it's, it's great. Well, that's what I was going to say when Vinny, on, on day one, and by the way, I think that that arc is the most underrated arc. A hundred percent. You know, totally. Cannell totally. even said, oh, Cannell didn't, even though he pretty much left us alone, he still had his opinion, of course. It's still his company. And uh, he thought that, that arc was a little bit too cerebral and confusing, and we vehemently disagreed with him. I said, no, you know, the whole audience can go a few minutes without seeing something blow up, you know? <laughs> yeah. might, and especially by that time, we pretty much had our core audience. So they mm -hmm. were with us. By the time day one showed up, they were on board. The ones that were going to be on board were all ready. So, but I... The way the thing I loved about that one of the things I loved about that arc is when yeah on day one when Vinny goes and he says Big Pike pull over the car and you see the Capitol and you see the and Vinny is so sweet almost in his naivete mm -hmm. that's great about, like, oh I love this town you know this is what it's yep. all about and yeah. then as it turns out all these people are want to chop his head off are conspiring against him Absolutely. and that was so wonderful is that this could go, you mentioned it before, different genres, that there's the James Bond arc, there's the Godfather, there's this wonderful thing with his mother who who he can't tell that he's an undercover agent, she thinks he's a hood. And now you're doing Seven Days in May and a conspiracy <laughs> thriller. Yeah, yeah. And where the seed of that idea came from was my idea of counterfeiting. As one crime I've always been fascinated by, and mm -hmm. that is, and I always thought, even as a kid, I thought, wouldn't it be smarter not to counterfeit your own currency, but counterfeit some foreign currency mm -hmm. and try to get it, you know, on the foreign exchange, however that works, you know? But that was where the seed of the idea came from, was my fascination with counterfeiting. Non-stable destabilization. Course, <laughs> right, well, that then then once uh, David and Steve got on board, then they expanded it to the yeah the non-genuine destabilization and all that. <laughs> but, um. So yeah, and that's the thing that Cannell had a hard time with. And I said, no, it's fine when they're in that in that one war room where they have the spray paint cannon or explaining all the steps of what's going on. I had no problem with that. I thought it was great. I thought it was fascinating. What yeah. they, what Steve and, and David came up with. Oh yes. So yeah, I, that's that's one of the most, probably the most underrated arc. Absolutely. Oh, and, and Norman Lloyd is a Hollywood legend. He was a treasure. Oh yeah. I mean, come on. And damn, he was only like 104, 105. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but everybody's Sorry. great now. When David Spielberg gets, uh, you know, basically. Um, Set up by Tracy Lords, and I mean, it's just yeah. so much great, juicy stuff in that. Oh, there, there really is. I, I tell you, I when we talk about this stuff, I just feel so grateful that I was able to do it. Look, you know, 
I would have loved to have not gotten hurt and been able to continue my career and all that. But things happen in life. What are you going to do? But the fact that I was able to do that at all, and here we are over 30 years later, 30 throughout yeah. third of a century later, and we're still talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do the Lou Gehrig thing here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> On the face of the earth. Uh, and I really okay. do feel that way. So subscribe today at TrexpressPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets. Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Life Tour continues. I am ready. Trex Are you so ready? ready? <laughs> Are you I sure you're ready? ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh GalaxyCon, Raleigh, 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 North Carolina, Raleigh. in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be getting lucky in Las Vegas oh for my. the Creation 57-Year Mission Convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great GalaxyCon. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And I want you to join Ron Howard, Cameron Crowe, Scott Mance, Roger Corman, William Shatner, Paul Schrader, Nicholas Meyer, Henry Winkler, Amy Heckerling, Dee Wallace, Leonard Moulton, and over 100 plus stars, directors, writers, critics, and studio executives on our epic four-week look at the greatest geek year ever, 1982, including deep dives into E.T., Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, My Favorite Year, Diner, Fast Time. Times at Ridgemont High, The Beastmaster, Blade Runner, and of course, Megaforce. Greatest Geek Year Ever premieres Saturday, July 8th on The CW, or watch a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th, or anytime on The CW app. Remember, the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Explore the far reaches of the universe with the Starship Enterprise and Wendy's. Because right now, with the purchase of a Wendy's fun-packed meal, you'll receive a free Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan movie poster. Imagine it. You get just the right size Wendy's hamburger, french fries, and soft drinker Frosty, plus this exciting color wall poster free. So beam yourself to Wendy's for a fun-packed meal that's truly out of this world. But be careful. The Wrath of Khan awaits you. And we're back to celebrate the glorious geek year that was 1982. Again. And again. <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna share with you a very special panel that we recorded at GalaxyCon, um, where we talked about the very year and some of the very <laughs> special movies that came out that year, of course, including The Wrath of Khan, E.T., Blade Runner, John Carpenter's The Thing, and uh many others. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty spectacular year. 
And uh, if you want an even deeper dive into uh, what was happening, uh, don't miss uh, my new documentary series, Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, which put the CW on July 8th at 8 p.m. with a special encore presentation, Tuesday, July 11th, and will air every Saturday throughout July, all July long, all month long. And of course, uh, we'll be talking about it at Comic-Con and in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina in July, in July, where the Trexperts will be continuing their inglorious live tour. So uh, we hope you'll join us for that. And if you join us for our um, docu-series, um, you'll be seeing eye-opening interviews with genre superstars from in front and behind the camera, including Darren Dodgerman. And also Ron Howard, Paul Schrader, John Sayles, Amy Heckerling, Henry Winkler, Sean Young, William Shatner, Joanna Cassidy, Keith Dave, Cameron Crowe, Michael Dealey, Lisa Haley, Lisa Hevlin, Bruce Campbell, Dee Wallace, Mark Guggenheim, Stephen D'Souza, Felicia Day, Susan Seidelman, Roger Corman, Barry Boswick, Mark Singer, Brian Fuller, Leonard Malton, Mike Medavoy, and over 100 more stars, directors, writers, producers, critics, executives, and pop pop culture historians. So don't miss my new doc documentary series, Greatest Geek You're Ever, airing on the CW starting Saturday, July 8th. But first, listen to Darren, Ashley, and myself talking about the glory year of 1982 at GalaxyCon Richmond. Are you guys ready? I we am are ready. so ready, Max Headroom. <laughs> and when we finish, we're going to share the details of a special Kickstarter coming from the three of us in July. We did this film to honor what is one of the great movie years of all time and probably one of the great um, times for popular culture. Simon the Atari 2600, the Intellivision. Uh, it was great music. Um, there was a great television. Cheers premiered that year. St. Elsewhere premiered. Um, uh, family Ties. But... It was really the movies that make it pretty special. Obviously, you guessed already, we'll be talking about E.T., um, uh, Blade Runner, um, uh, Poltergeist, Tron, Tron Dark Crystal, Fitzcarraldo. Okay, I'll skip over Fitzcarraldo. But, oh, you uh, don't skip over Fitzcarraldo. You just sort you of pull it up the mountain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Rocky Three, 48 Hours. Um, I mean, the list is, is staggering. Uh, how many Conan the Barbarian, the uh, amazing films. And so in our documentary, which will air as a four-part uh, TV event, um, we deal with all those movies and, and more. And uh, we brought with us a small clip from, uh, from the Star Trek II section, because that seemed appropriate. Do you remember seeing Star Trek II for the first time in 1982, Darren? I do. I remember seeing it. We went to the uh, theater probably the week after it because we were busy at the first book. But, uh, you know, I had already been a big fan of Star Trek The Motion Picture and uh, didn't really know what to expect from this one. When the, uh, the new music came up and the new title, uh, it looked fun to me. So, uh, and I completely enjoyed it. And I, my biggest memory of that is mowing the lawn uh, in the backyard at home, uh, wearing my little uh, Walkman and playing the Star Trek II soundtrack. Uh, over and over again as I uh, made the rounds on, on the lawn. And uh, it's one of my favorite uh, memories from... Uh, Ashley, did you see it in uh, a theater first run? or I, I did, actually, um, but I almost didn't get to because the, the weekend that it was released, I was almost dead, uh, and, and for really great reason. I had a, a thing when I was a kid about reading novelizations of movies. 
um, sometimes in lieu of going to the movies. And I read the novelization of Star Trek II before I went to see it. Now, I don't know if you guys... Yeah, by Vonda McIntyre. I uh, I don't know if you guys um, have have seen the movie or not, but a lot of really big stuff happens. And, um, like, for example, Scotty knows that uh, Dr. McCoy is on the bridge and that's where he should bring his dying nephew. Um, So that was great. But uh, I, I got to... Just to, to the big moment in Star Trek II. And I had to tell someone. So I went to see my brother, who was six years older than I was, and I said, my God, in Star Trek II, Spock dies. What? Yeah. And um, I don't know if I've ever been beaten harder in my life. Uh, so, yeah, I almost didn't make it to see the film, but it was great. <laughs> well, let's take a quick look at uh, the segment from the documentary about Star Trek II. Anyway, so that's a brief... Uh, a brief snippet of the Star Trek II segment, which goes on much longer. Um, but, you know, beyond the, the classics we remember, I mean, there's also stuff like The Sword of Sorcerer and Friday 13th Part 3 in 3D and um, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I mean, it's a remarkably diverse year of films. Do you have, like, what's your favorite film from that year? Do you have a favorite? Oh, yeah, easily. I mean, if you set aside Star Trek II, I think, in retrospect, my favorite film of that year was E.T. Um, I think it's a, obviously, it's a classic. I personally think it is, uh, it's Spielberg's masterpiece, and I mean that in the classic sense, that it's the movie that demonstrated that it wasn't a, you know, a lucky coincidence that he did Jaws and Close Encounters. And Raiders. He was a ma- and Raiders. Thank you. That he was in fact a master of the form because E.T. was so different from those other films, um, and it just spoke to me in a different way. What if you putting Star Trek Two aside? Do you have a favorite? And E.T. E. Um, okay. I I really uh, enjoyed Tron when I first saw it. Uh, that again was something completely different. It was a a different looking movie. It, it felt different. It felt like a cartoon, but for adults because uh, the story had a lot of sort of deeper meanings to it, and I, I liked the sort of uh, religious allegory that was being told, and uh, that it was a gladiator movie in sci-fi, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. When I first saw it, it was, it was surprising to me how much I liked it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, because it wasn't just great groundbreaking movies like Blade Runner, which showed us the future, which pioneered visual effects, which showed us uh, the future of cinema. There were also these big swings and misses. And for anybody who was reading comic books at the time, you couldn't have missed the ads for Megaforce. With the great, our good friend in the hall, Barry Boswick, we love him. And this is a film that is remarkable for its inanity, how bad it is. It's directed by Hal Needham, who made his bones as a stuntman. And this was going to be a, a great huge... Stuntman, fra- a great stuntman. So you're naming him the fall guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this was going to be um, the next big franchise. Mattel put a bunch of money into it, and 20th Century Fox was already planning sequels, and if you were alive at the time and reading Starlog, you're like... This is going to be the greatest movie ever! The Megaforce Cinematic Universe. And what's remarkable is the weekend it came out, it was the most successful film of that weekend, and it was a bomb. You know what the other two movies were? Blade Runner and John Carpenter's The Thing. Two of them are classics, and Megaforce, as I think I say in the film, is a genuine anti-classic. So whether you love it, have never heard of it, or, or... 
don't appreciate its charms, let's take a look at Megaforce. It's incredible when you stop to think that Blade Runner, The Thing, and Megaforce all came out the same day. Two of them are now considered classics, and one a genuine anti-classic, and I say that with love. The concept and the way they sold that movie, particularly to a 12-year-old boy, was so much better than the execution. It's just like this movie that has no idea what it wants to be, and yet, absolutely delightful. Barry Boswick is great in Megaforce. I mean, he really gives the perfect performance for that movie. I want to go watch it again. Are you man enough for Megaforce? The audience basically was 12-year-old boys. The 12-year-old boy would be brought to the theater by their dad, and they would bond over this movie. Then they would go home, and then they would put rockets on their Schwinn bikes and do everything to make it look like a Megaforce motorcycle. It was so simple. It was good guys against the bad guys. It was black and white. The leaders of every free nation in the world secretly contribute their best men and their most advanced equipment, and they determine where and when we strike. Like, I remember Megaforce had this great ad that every Marvel comic published around that time. They had, you know, deeds, not words, Barry Boswick's character. It wasn't a photograph. It was a comic book-style recreation, so you really did feel like, oh my God, this movie's like a comic book come to life. And, you know, 12-year-old boy, there's nothing cooler than that. Hal Needham was the director, the number one stunt guy in the world at that time. Hal Needham was the real deal. Had a lot of success with Smoking the Band, and Hooper. Battles are won or lost on quick decisions. The hardest part of making Megaforce was the thought that I could be killed at any moment by a vehicle which would go out of control or a rocket which would basically go 20 feet, turn around, and go right through my chest. We have a little problem here. Those rockets, you lit them and they just took off and you didn't know where they were gonna go. They go off and then they just spiral all over the place. They were like boys playing with fireworks. That's the way it is. I was stoned by the pool and they came and they said, no, you, you know, you'll have to shoot this afternoon. And I go, well, I thought I was off for the day or else I wouldn't have gotten you know, stoned by the pool in Las Vegas. And then I would be rushed to the set and hope that they didn't put me on a motorcycle that day. I think that's the best argument for CGI that has ever been made. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a Megaforce fan? Had you even seen Megaforce? Not a bit. I, I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally did. Or, or I might have uh, been a potential fan of Megaforce. But no, I, I saw it and I, I went, what is going on? Because it, it is a mess. <laughs> but, but it's an entertaining mess to just imagine why the heck anyone would have done this. You uh, saw it for Persis Kambata, though. You were a big fan yeah, of her. Of course. I mean, you know, Persis Kambata looking luminous in uh, Megaforce and uh, not really knowing what she was doing in it. And you were the, the audience, both. Uh, both. Yeah. The audience didn't know either. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the magic of how Needham lives on. Yeah, yeah. But for you, I imagine... The film that came out that weekend, The Loom's Largest, is one of your favorite movies of all time, of course, is John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that movie, first of all, still holds up, number one. Number two, 
I think what works best about it is that John Carpenter really found a formula that in a way uh, varied a lot from his, uh, his usual shtick, right? Which was um, a little bit off-center and different. I mean, you, you see um, his command of, of claustrophobia and kind of the idea of the monster in the house in and, and Halloween, which was pretty groundbreaking, um, obviously, in its own way. But you really feel this sense of isolation in the thing. Um, and you really understand who all of these characters are as you're watching them like get taken out one by one and the paranoia and it's just it's it's terrific it's scary it has one of the best film endings of all time it ends on a question mark which really you should never do unless it's a great question but it is um in fact uh when my son my oldest was about eight years old seven years old we went to see et at the egyptian theater in la and after E.T., they were going to show The Thing. And I'm sitting there with my, my seven-year-old, and I'm thinking, if I sit here and I watch The Thing with him as well, am I the worst father of all time or the best? <laughs> we went home. <laughs> I don't know if you'd make the same decision now, would you? No, I wouldn't. We yeah. would absolutely stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so many great comedies, Darren. Tootsie, 48 Hours, Blade Runner. Diner, <laughs> My Favorite Year. Do you have a yeah. favorite comedy of 1982? I really enjoy My Favorite Year. Uh, Peter O'Toole is great, uh, playing this sort of uh, uh, Errol Flynn-type character, but uh, a little less drunk than the real one. A little. <laughs> um, but it's, it's such an interesting sort of uh, take on uh, you know early television and uh, the uh, the the showbiz that no one really thought about then uh, sort of doing live TV and it, it brings up uh, all sorts of questions about how they how they made things work back then and uh, it, it was a, it's a fascinating character piece uh, about uh, about this and it's it's very exciting and fun to watch. It's a remarkable year for Sylvester Stallone because not only does he have Rocky III. Now, when we fought, you had that eye of the tiger, man, the edge. And now you've got to get it back. And the way to get it back is to go back to the beginning. You know what I mean? United Artists and Chartoff Winkler proudly present Rocky III. The worst thing happened to you. It could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. Get out of here, will you? The truth is, we both started out on the same corner, and I got lucky with my life, and it's driving you nuts. Philadelphia salutes its favorite son, Rocky Balboa. Why don't you tell all these nice folks why you've been ducking me? This guy is a wrecking machine. You know, you've got a big mouth. Why don't you come out and close it, Balboa? Come on. I want to fight this guy. You'll fight him without me. Balboa was a fine champion, but his time has passed. See that look in their eyes, Rock? Got to get that look back, Rock. I the tiger, come on. I will destroy any man who tries to take what I got. I'm going to torture him. I'm gonna crucify him real bad. For the first time in my life, I'm afraid. Damn, Ron, come on! There's nothing wrong with being afraid. You thought I was tough? This jump will kill you. You wake up after a few years thinking you're a winner, but you're not. There is no tomorrow. You're really a loser. Well, I don't believe it. There is no tomorrow. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. 
Rocky's greatest challenge to save his honor, his marriage, and his manhood against his most devastating and dangerous opponent. Bust you up. Go for it. Sylvester Stallone, Talia Shire, Burgess Meredith, Carl Weathers, Burt Young, and introducing Mr. T. Rocky III, an American tradition. His first blood come out that year. And, you know, whatever you think of the Rambo movies, First Blood is a real movie. Yeah. You know, First Blood's great. It's the serious version of Rambo. Yeah. It's a, it, I mean, it was, it was a real drama that in its um, later iterations became uh, a parody of itself and kind of cashing in, I think, on what people believed was great about that movie, but it wasn't. What was great about First Blood was that, you know, John Rambo was a real person who was capable of incredibly dangerous things. And the fact that we found ourselves cheering for him, right? He was like this enormously successful anti-hero, but not in a, a dirty, hairy kind of way. Right. Well, what's so interesting about that movie, too, is uh, in the original cut, um, it, like in the book that it's based on, um, Rambo dies. And they realized that... Um, that was a bit of a downer of an ending. They <laughs> shot, you know. Yeah. So they, when they landed his torpedo on the Genesis planet, that was. <laughs> but you think that that franchise wouldn't exist if they hadn't have rewritten and reshot the ending, um, in which Rambo, Rambo lives, and uh, it, it was a really obviously great choice in retrospect. And it's just an incredible year for him. I mean, you know, a couple of actors had it. You know, multiple movies come out that year that were super successful, but nobody had you know more success than Sylvester Stallone. I mean, and also Kirk Douglas was supposed to play Troutman in First in First Blood, and uh, what happened is once Sylvester Stallone comes on board, he keeps rewriting the script to make Rambo more and more important, and Troutman starts becoming this big role, and smaller and smaller and smaller. So when Kirk Douglas shows up, he's literally on location and sees the role that he now has, which has been truncated. He gets in the van and goes to the airport and goes home. And they had to cast Richard Crenna on incredibly short notice for that role, and he's great. So um, it, it is, it's one of those Hollywood stories that just you just never know. I mean, sometimes necessity is truly the mother of invention. Um, why do you think that year is so groundbreaking in so many ways. We hadn't seen, whatever you think of Tron, you know, or Dark Crystal, a movie entirely made with puppets. Um, We're not or, made by puppets, but... You know, or, or Star Trek II, which is as different from Star Trek the motion picture as you could possibly imagine, whether for good or for ill. It's, 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 it's a poltergeist, which is, inverts the old Dark House paradigm and sets a horror movie in a contemporary suburban housing development with kids who have Darth Vader posters on the wall. And, and, and uh, So what, what, why do you think 82 was like this milestone year that, in which cinema really was transformed? I think it has to do with the, the, the slow reaction of Hollywood to the success of Star Wars. Um, Star Wars came out in uh, mid-1977, and it took Hollywood but completely by surprise. They weren't expecting anything like that. Uh, uh, six months later, uh, Close Encounters comes out, uh, and they're going, what are we doing? We've got to be doing some, you know, some, some big uh, 
populist movies like this. And the, the process of, uh, of development for Hollywood in that time was, you know, three or four years sometimes. Yeah. And so it's this lag that sort of gave us all the, the magical, uh, uh, you know, uh, sci-fi fantasy genre movies uh, in 82, because it's, it, it's really amazing. Uh, the number of, of them that came out that year and how many of them are even remembered now. It's, it's, uh, it's quite extraordinary and it, it never happened again. Yeah. Well, do you think that you agree no, with I that? No, I think that's totally true. It's just, you know, William Goldman said, I mean, is it William Goldman said nobody knows anything? Yeah. I don't even know who said it. Um, and, uh, and I think he's right. You know, it's, you look at the success of Star Wars, you look at the success of, uh, of Jaws, and suddenly you have this thing that, Star that Hollywood never had before. You had the blockbuster. Hollywood only had one way to make movies, right? Which is the same way that they had been making movies that produced Jaws and Star Wars, except now they had this notion, as, as Darren said, that, you know, that there is this way to hit the sweet spot. So I think by the time you hit 1982, everybody embraced nobody knows anything. And they let filmmakers go and try Anything. whatever it was to try to recreate that success because nobody understood the formula yet. And sequels weren't really a thing yet. None of that stuff like that we now look at is, hey, well, now we're on the 29th movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We don't think about that. Nobody asked, like, well, why is there a Star Trek II? You know, it was, or why is there an Empire Strikes Back? We knew. Um, and I think that the 80s were really just this incredible time of experimentation that were the product of success in the 70s. And it was right at the moment that corporate America started taking over the movie business. And uh, at that point, they, they didn't think that they knew everything about how to make movies, so they let the, they let the creative people do it. Uh, later, they, they realized it was all them all the time, so oh, they, they made the decisions. Uh, but uh, it, was a, it was a very short window where the creative people could actually do movies that they thought uh, would do well. Well, there's also something very transformative going on as well, which is it's the emergence of, even though HBO had been around, HBO becomes really big as a way for people to re-experience movies. And home, uh, home video is really taking off. It's the first year where videotapes are released um, on home video for an affordable price at the time. Star Trek II and Officer and Gentleman are the first movies to be released at $39.95, which was remarkably cheap compared to um, the rental business, where if you wanted to buy a tape, it was over $100 if you could even buy it. Um, so now people are starting to re-experience movies over and over again. And that's why you get, you know, a lot of people didn't know HBO stood for home box office. They thought it stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on because Beastmaster was on every 12 minutes on HBO. And that was another 1982 movie that was, uh, you know, huge, and that home video and, and, and television and repeats really made into a mainstay. Um, and you saw that because the um, uh, TBS was also the Beastmaster station. The Beastmaster was their second most successful movie ever next to Gone with the Wind. Which is crazy, because a lot of people don't even remember Beastmaster. But that was another film in 1982. I guarantee there were no ferrets in uh, Gone with the Wind. And <laughs> this was also a time, because this is still when you saw re-releases. So some, one of the most successful movies in 1982 
is a movie that came out in 1977. Star Wars was in the top 10 because it was the re-release of Star Wars, because most people couldn't watch it at home yet. And you still had this huge popularity of the toys. And I want to look at one of those commercials because um, they're just hysterical. <laughs> you know, some stuff is hysterical. It's the new Boba Fett Star Wars large-size action figure from Kenner. Darth Vader sold separately. Capture them alive! I'm the best bounty hunter in the whole galaxy. That's why you got the job. Boba Fett has a see-through helmet with play rangefinder to locate your objective. You can move his legs, knees, arms, even wrists and elbows. His backpack unit is removable. You have your mission. Good luck. I don't need luck. I'm the best. New Boba Fett Star Wars large-size action figure from Kenner. Darth Vader sold separately. What's amazing is that's better than an episode of the book of Boba Fett. Oh. <laughs> oh. Get that kid. That's candy. Thank you, Fatty. <laughs> I like candy. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's 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 really so. It's an incredible year. So you see, the best of the '70s are still. Because Raiders got re-released that year. Star Wars got re-released that year. Um, in fact, I think 82 was the first year that Star Wars had episode four, New Hope, on it. And people went just to see the crawl change. I know I was one of the idiots. I gotta go see it again. They changed the crawl. And it now, now if you call it a New Hope, we kick you out of the room. I think That's... that was before that because Empire came out. No, but, but, but a New Hope wasn't until after Empire. They didn't release it because remember the print we saw at the Cinematheque? Right. That was the 82 print. That was the first print that had uh, episode four on it. Someone will check on us. Okay, I'm sure that we have a research department called the Internet. That's, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, but I'd love also to hear maybe what you guys' favorite movies are 82, because maybe there's some we're not talking about. I don't think anybody, Meryl Streep uh, uh, in, um, uh, what was it, Still the Night is going to be on your list, but maybe Albert Finney and Peter Weller and. Shoot the moon. Um, oh, we got it. We got a. Uh, in April, Star Wars was re-released re with the addition of subtitles Episode Four and and A New Hope in 1981. 1981. Okay, so, right. so 81 was when Star Wars was re-released with the crawl, but then it came out again in 82, and was one of the top movies of the year, which is crazy. This is why they put me in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the middle man. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your you, favorite movies from 82, um, because it's it, it just, you keep going, you say, oh, that was 82? You know, Paul Schrader's remake of Cat People. Um, and it's interesting, because you see, the same way that now, you know, Kevin Feige will talk about a movie he grew up on, or a lot of filmmakers talking about these films that were huge influences for them from the 80s and 90s. Back then, it was all people talking about these movies they grew up in the 50s. So you had Paul Schrader remaking Cat People. You had John Carpenter remaking The Thing from Another World. You know, Spielberg wasn't strictly remaking anything, but he was kind of honoring those films that he saw as a kid. Subcommander Tall. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I want to shout out, you've already mentioned it, but Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, a lot of people hear that name and they kind of vaguely remember it as sort of, uh, you know, a big uh, ridiculous uh, fantasy movie from back then. But that movie, the cinematography is beautiful. Gorgeous. I mean, John Lillius does such an amazing job. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he, does, he barely speaks in that movie, which is a good thing. Some, <laughs> the first five or ten minutes of that, that so it's so, like a tone poem. Yeah. Well, it's so funny you say that because Conan is a gorgeous movie shot in Spain. 
uh, with an amazing score by Basil Polidorus. And we, we give it a lot of love in the documentary, I'll tell you that. But um, it's interesting because Dino De Laurentiis, who was this big, larger-than-life Italian producer, and he talked with an accent, he could not really speak English. And, and so when they went to Dino and said, we want to cast Arnold Schwarzenegger in the film as Conan, he goes, no, he has an accent, I don't want to use him, he's terrible. And, um, and, and they, exactly like that. And so John Milius says, well, then I got the perfect person. I got an Oscar winner. He, you know, he, he's a big box office draw. And he says, oh, all oh, this sounds great. Who? He goes, Dustin Hoffman. And, he go, and, and, and then he goes, uh, and he goes, fine, cast Donald, I don't care. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting because that was another one that had real rating support problems because of the blood. You know, the orgy chamber was not an issue. But the blood was a was a problem, and they had to really cut that and change well, it. In, in fairness, there is that whole scene where they've got the big vats like full of soup that are yeah, green, made of green people. soup with people parts in it. Yeah, and with still, people, you know, people. Soil and green soup. That's right. It's made of people. Yeah. So my question, you know, and and this is interesting because we had had um, this guy Merv Block on the Trexperts, thanks to Darren on our podcast. And Merv um, talked about recording the Orson Welles trailer for Star Trek The Motion Picture. But he had also done, uh, um, two years later, worked with Orson on Conan. And so he, in the documentary, he talks about um, working with Orson Welles. And we have the original recordings of that trailer, which is remarkable. Because, of course, uh, he's miserable. He doesn't want to do it. And he basically says... You know, and then when at the end it says uh, rated R, uh, not admitted without a parent, he doesn't. He refuses to say that. He says it sounds like some kind of low rent yeah. announcement. It sounds like a used car commercial. Like a used car commercial, <laughs> and he and he wouldn't say it. For, so they're arguing. He's getting drunker and drunker the whole time. But meanwhile, he says, "So what don't you want to say? Rated R, you know, uh, not admitted without a parent." He says, "Oh, okay. Well, let's record the rest." And and he says, "Yeah, you get some low class announcer. I'm not doing that. It breaks the spell." So, of course, they used the version where he says, what do you want me not to say? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, but it's, 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 it's wild, and that's a film, I think, that, you know, God bless Sarah, who's wonderful in Conan the Destroyer, but that's a terrible movie compared to the original Conan, which is very serious and you know, Nietzschean. And, you know, John Lillis was not a big fantasy fan, but he loved opera. You know, he loved Larger Than Life. And, and you see it in that movie, and that's why that's another movie that really stands the test of time. He, he wanted to make it a historical document. Yeah, right, exactly. Of a time that didn't exist. Uh, the, uh, I consider it the yin to uh, Conan's yang. I don't know, I missed the beginning, so I said, but... Uh, I don't think you can say, you can say Conan's yang. Or yang. Right, yeah. Well, I think Sword and the Sorcerer does it for me. Yeah, and it's funny, Sword. we did... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's wonderful. It's soupy, uh, and again, it's got that 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 surreptitious uh, underground uh, sort of attitude to it. And yeah, it's everything. They made it for a dollar. Yeah, exactly. But and it made eighty million, which is why they didn't do the sequel because it was private investors in Europe. They said, you know what? We've made so much, we're we're done. Yeah, it we're made more money than Conan. Yes. Conan cost forty million dollars and basically turned a small profit. Sword and Sorcerer cost like one. And made more money than Conan. It made Every 80. it made eighty insane. But that was when you could make a movie for a million dollars and release it in theaters and have it play for months, if not years, and be wildly successful. I mean, that's Corman made a business out of it. And that year he had Forbidden World, which is so funny because Forbidden World started off with um, 
basically coming off of Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy of Terror, and Roger Corman tells his editor, Alan Holtzman, he says, I want you to rip off Lawrence of Arabia and put it in his face. But as soon as they realized that Lawrence Arabia in space was too expensive, he said, forget that, just rip off Alien again. And that's what they did, they ripped off Alien and it became Forbidden World, which is also known as Mutant, which is an interesting little horror picture. You guys talk about Tron, because that was a classic. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we talked a little bit about Tron before, but Tron is remarkable because, you know, you gotta remember, Disney was not the Disney of Marvel, thanks Patty, was not the, Mar you know, the Marvel juggernaut. This was when they would be re-releasing animated films and they put out like, crap like Condor Man, no offense. And, um, and, and so, you know, Tron was like their big gamble. Like Ron Miller thought this was gonna be the thing that saves the studio, this is transformative, this is the kind of risk that Disney took, you know, in the early days. And it wasn't because it was really ahead of its time. Uh, the, uh, the people who made it um, and, the, and the, the technicians who oversaw it, like Harris and Alan Shaw, who was head of the math department at, at Disney, um, they were trying to figure out every possible way to make this film. They were originally going to make it all animated. Um, and they had done a lot of uh, experiments with sort of backlit graphic animation. And uh, because uh, uh, Steve... Uh, Lisberger. Steve Lisberger um, had an animation company that sort of specialized in doing that, like, uh, you know, blurbs for radio stations and things like that. And they developed this character called Tron, which is just this sort of big sort of computer-like character that had a, a, a disc that he threw around and it, it made big sparkly things uh, in, uh, on the screen. And so they finally got around to sort of coming up with a, a script for this about going into the computer world. And uh, uh, luckily, uh, the, uh, they discovered that there were some uh, very early computer graphics companies who were experimenting with this kind of thing and they could barely do it um, because there was no really good way of, of transferring digital uh, images to film. They basically were filming a, a CRT tube um, and it hadn't been done before. And as you see in the film, there's a lot of sequences that should have been done in CG that they just reverted to regular animation like the grid bugs and things like that. What are they doing there? I don't know. We just had to fill the time. Um, but it, it's, it's really amazing because uh, several companies sort of uh, chimed in to do sections of the film, uh, but the main interesting thing was that it was a, uh, a tour de force in regular optical printing uh, uh, filming uh, because they isolated all the, uh, all the live action and hand-drew uh, rotoscoping to isolate colors and isolate what would glow and all that. And that it was an incredibly uh, uh, tough job to do. They had uh, companies in, I think, uh, Korea uh, doing it at the time. And uh, it's just an incredible task to make even the non-CG stuff in the film work. And it's, it, technically, it is unmatched for the time. Um, Story-wise, it's cute, and, uh, you know, Jeff Bridges is uh, amazing, as always. Uh, but it's, it's such a, like I said before, it's such a 
you originally think of it as like a kid's movie, but there are other layers under there that the, the older you get, the more you can appreciate it. So, you know, it's interesting too about Tron because much like today, they were looking for a star to hedge their bets. You know, we need a star. And everyone turned them down because it was like, what is the movie about? Well, it's about these people that live inside your computer that are basically uh, Spartacus inside uh, your Vic Train, you know, Commodore 64. And uh, they're users, and there's the game grid, and it's like, what the what? No, you know, nobody's doing that movie. So, but Jeff Bridges, because he's crazy, and you know, he like, like, fuck out, man, I want to do that movie. So, uh, you know, and that's how Jeff Bridges ended up doing it. To this day, he's super proud of it, because it's a great movie, and it was totally ahead of its time, and it was a huge bomb, but what's funny is they made a lot of money on the video game, because the video game in arcades was hugely popular, and that helped to defray some of the losses, and of course it's kept its reputation alive, so you had many years later the sequel, and now they're, you know... Uh, Planning to do Tron 3, which is uh, a long time coming, and hopefully they'll get it right this time. So, uh, third time's the charm. Third time's the third time's the So, now here's a question for you. In the year in which Blade Runner came out, E.T., Star Trek II, The Verdict, Diner, um, all these, all these fantastic, my favorite year, all these fantastic movies, what do you think won the Oscar that year? Fast Times. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Fast Times because we didn't talk about Fast Times. That's another, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out the year. Porky's came out that year. And you can't imagine two movies being more opposite because you call them both teen exploitation. But Fast Times is a very smart, intelligent movie, you know, based on Cameron Crowe's book about going back to high school and writing about what high school was like in the 80s, pretending he was a high school student, repeating the grades that his mother made him skip. So um, it's, it, it's a great, you know, it's a great movie. And Universal was embarrassed. Uh, there were executives there who said, we can't release this, it's going to bring down the studio. You know, <laughs> it's just pornographic. And it was, of course it's not. It's, it's a very smart, nuanced movie with, you know, uh, Sean Penn and, and, and Judge Reinhold and Phoebe, uh, Phoebe Cates. And it's just, it's phenomenal. Phoebe Cates and, was in that movie? Did I see? Yeah, yeah well, she was. <laughs> 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 and um, it, it's just a great, you know, movie. Then you have something like Porky's, which basically made a fortune off of the one sheet, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and. Whoa! Sorry, if you see the movie, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, so um, but no, it didn't win, that didn't win the Oscar. Gandhi won. Gandhi won, which is crazy. Because it's exactly the kind of movie you expect to win an Oscar. And it but, did. Talk about a movie that doesn't stand the test of time. No one talks about Gandhi now. If anything, they say, Ben Kingsley playing an Indian? You know, but... Uh, did he win the best actor for that? He did. He won the best actor for that as well. So E.T. won a bunch of technical ben categories. Ben Kingsley played Indira Gandhi? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really... You know, it's amazing to see, like, what stands the test of time. And that's why, you know, the Oscars, as we know, is not necessarily indicative of what will be... You know the classics in 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 the year come, but I'm so glad you mentioned Fast Times. So that other movies from '82. Beastmaster. Well, we talked about Beastmaster. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, but absolutely, Beastmaster is great. Don Coscarelli, and and you know that was interesting because they optioned an Andre Norton novel and they read it, and like a lot of people adapting material today, said the title's great. <laughs> so they they basically threw out the entire book. And said, we're going to call it the Beastmaster, because the Beastmaster doesn't even take place on Earth. And um, they licensed um, 
they, for $10,000, they got these oil fields up in Simi Valley to shoot. And they made that for four or five million dollars, and it's, it's really amazing what they pulled off. Um, and also, Beastmaster has two ferret friends named Momo and Popo. And so, evidently, he's five years old, which is great. Um, I aspire to that myself. But, and you know, they had a tiger that they had to put Lady Clarrell on to make a, a black tiger because it was not a black tiger. And, um, uh, they, you know, and Mark, it's so funny, they, they would tell Mark Singer, you got to be really careful because the tiger doesn't know they're in a movie and doesn't want to be in a movie. And Mark Singer would be like, no, he's my friend. I was told it's a documentary. And it's like, that's what Siegfried and Roy said, too. Yeah. And, but, all uh, you can eat, all you can imagine. But he... he You love Dark Crystal, yeah. I, I think Dark Crystal, I have so much respect for it. Right. I don't know if I say I love it, but I, 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 I respect it because I think what Jim Henson accomplished is amazing. And not only that, um, it, it tested really badly because originally um, it, was in another, it was subtitled in another language. They all spoke in another language. And then they dubbed it in English later on when they realized it wasn't working. And what Henson did was he took all his... <coughs> his money that he had made um, and bought it back. He bought it back from Lou Grade, who financed it. So he could do what he wanted with it because he believed in it. And I love that. And then Universal released it and it did okay. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's technically amazing. Um, I think that the, the world that, uh, that Brian Frog uh, created with his designs is fascinating. I don't think it translates into 3D, though. I don't think it translates off the flat page. It's, it's, I think one of the things that, that bothers me about it is the, the, uh, the human-like puppets, that, that there is sort of no uh, touchstone that humans have in this world. Uh, and it would seem to me that there, if, if they had found a way to do it with actual humans in just those roles, then it might have been an interesting sort of combination of styles going on. Uh, it, it's, it's a little overwhelming for me, uh, just because the, the story is so incredibly simple, yet so hard to understand. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating, it looks beautiful, uh, and uh, it, again, it, the, the determination that Henson had to make that uh, one of his uh, dream projects, uh, and he was able to see it through. It's truly an amazing story. It's, it's a movie to be, I think, admired and, and respected. I, I don't know that I, I love it, but I find it very watchable. But I think my issue with the Gelflings was, one of my issues with the, with the, kind of the voice performances throughout was that they were just so, the voice performances felt disconnected from what was happening on the screen, from the action. I don't well, mean like because they, they had to create the dialogue oh, to wait, sync wait. with the mouths because the mouths had originally said something completely different. Yeah. No, yeah, sure, sure. But I also mean just the, that the, I don't know that the voice direction mm. in that movie was great uh, because you just, there was, there was nothing in what was happening. Those performances kind of hold me into it. And I think that made the Gelflings twice as crazy. I love the Trevor Jones score. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think it also has a really interesting message because the end, without giving anything away, we kind of find out what unites the two species. They're all puppets. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it, it's a nice message. But it was a huge risk for Henson that ended up paying off because he not only bought back Dark Crystal, but bought back The Muppet Show. And then many years later, he was able to sell them all 
to Disney for a ton of money, so it was a good investment for, for him. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. Um, yep. I've always loved Dev Trap. Oh, that's, that's a good, you know, people don't mention that. Yeah, and, and that's a 1982 movie, Death Trap, and it was based on the play. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful movie. I think Warner Archives put it out a couple years ago on Blu-ray. And people don't talk about it. I don't think we even mention it in the documentary. Like, there are a lot of things I would have loved to include, like Pink Floyd, The Wall. People don't talk about that anymore. That's 1982, right? I'm not talking about the album, the movie, the Alan Parker movie. And Alan Parker was a good year. He had Shoot the Moon and Pink Floyd, The Wall. You know, Diva was this huge... Um, brought people who never went to go see a foreign subtitle movie into theaters because it was like basically John Wick in France, but, you know, in French. And people Which would go, you know, and then, <laughs> and then you had like little indie movies like Smithereens that were really big and, and um, Chan is Missing, Wayne Wang's first movie, which is a terrific little detective thriller. So it was like all these kind of interesting movies and then these big movies and we barely even talked about Blade Runner. Um, yeah. Officer and a Gentleman. There you go, Officer and a Gentleman. People forget, yep. more successful than Star Trek Two. We still, I mean, you know, obviously we're at a sci-fi convention, but we talk about Star Trek II incessantly. People don't really talk about Arsenal Gentleman. That was one of the biggest movies of 82 and um, hugely successful. And it made, you know, Richard Gere's, you know, career and, you know, Deborah Winger, who was in demand, but then she got this reputation of being difficult. Um, but um, fa a fabulous movie. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous movie. But it, it lifted them up where they belong. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny because that's where you see the influence of MTV, which launched in 81, where all of a sudden these songs attached to a movie could make or break a movie because it was the year of Officer Gentleman and the music video for Up Where We Belong, but it was Eye the Tiger. You know, who would have bought a Survivor album if it hadn't been for Rocky Three? And I, the Tiger, which was everywhere, Survivor's everyone was mom was singing. Right. His Survivor's mom was singing I, the Tiger. So all of a sudden, you, you know, and Jesse's girl from Fast Times. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you had all these songs that were like sort of selling movies because of MTV, and that had never happened before. And those were the worst music videos because it was always just the band sitting with their like, and then there were clips of the movie. You know, there was like no cool music video. It wasn't like Prince or Duran Duran or something. I always something. kind of felt like the worst music video during the 80s was uh, the uh, the duet done with Mick Jagger and David Bowie where they remade Dancing in the Street. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. That was all pretty yeah. awful. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's pretty terrible. That, that's, I, w I would agree with you. No, Rats and Nim. The Secret of Secret, Nim. Secrets oh, and yeah. Nim, yeah. Based on a, a totally terrific book, Mrs. Frisbee. Yeah. Uh, Don, Don Bluth, who was yeah. a, a former uh, Disney employee and got uh, unceremoniously canned and uh, came back with his revenge uh, by starting an uh, animation company, I think in Ireland, uh, and did some amazing work, did some beautiful animation. Yeah, and he had this, the dual success of Secrets of Nim, where he was a genuine competitor for Disney for a little while, and then he had that great arcade game. What was it? Um, Dragon's, Dragon's Lair. Lair. Yeah, which was and all SpaceX. And yeah, SpaceX had their own Saturday morning cartoons. But um, but you know Don Bluth, long before DreamWorks was a glimmer in their creator's eye, Don Bluth was the Disney competitor. I mean, Secret of Nim is so lovingly animated, and a great Jerry Goldsmith score as well. So um, that's the great uh, 1982. Yep. Uh, it has plenty of problems, but I've always had a soft spot for a creep show. 
Yeah, yes. no, no, absolutely. And Creepshow is prominently in the documentary. In fact, we have a whole run with Adrian Barbeau. We talk about Creepshow, and obviously we talk about Swamp Thing, which is like when you, anyone can get the license to a, a superhero. It's amazing. You know, now we have these empires built around Marvel and built around DC, and what's James Gunn going to do and the release the Snyder Cut? Then it was like, oh, we're going to put out this little crappy Swamp Thing movie that we made for <laughs> Avco Embassy, which was barely a studio. And, yeah, yeah, I, I totally still like it too. I'm with you. And 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 um, so that that that's a fun part of the documentary because you know that it's Beauty and the Beast, you know, and and Adrian Barbeau is wonderful in it, and Dick Durock who played the Swamp Thing after he's Louis. Louis. And Creepshow is good too. Yeah. And Creepshow, yeah, Creepshow is super fun. Because again, we talk about people paying homage to what they grew up on. That's George Romero paying homage to the EC Comics he grew up with. And it's it's super fun. I mean, yeah. no, no, it's it's amazing. And you know, it's one of those it's one of the things that's unique about it, other than you know the, the fact that it's bananas, uh, is it's that anthology feel um, that it is. I think in many ways, Creepshow is the movie that the Twilight Zone movie kind of wanted to be, and maybe should have been, but wasn't. Um, that it really captured the feel of those EC comics. And those stories are just, you remember some of the imagery from them, which I think is, uh, is, is an accomplishment in and of itself. So yeah, it's easy to forget Creepshow is 1982, but Creepshow is still a thing, and there was just, I mean, it wasn't just a sequel, there was just a show on Shudder, and I think it was going for like a second season. Which was, uh, some of the cockroaches are still working in the end. <laughs> yeah, craft services. <laughs> but um, it, it's so interesting, too, because you got to remember, is, uh, is this, it was part of Stephen King becoming a brand household name because even though he'd had uh, Carrie as a bestseller, you know, De Palma gets a lot of credit for that, as he should, The Fury. But it's really in the 80s where you see King become like this, you know, icon. And Creepshow had a lot to do with it because not only did he write part of it uh, and get credit, but he's in it. You know, he plays Jordy Verrill, which is not one of the better segments, but he's in it. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to add to Creepshow, because you were still on the subject, was that um, I saw it, I didn't get to see it in the theaters because it, well, I was too young, so I saw it on VHS the year later when I was like seven years old. My dad uh, showed it to me, not knowing it had scary parts, and uh, I ended up having nightmares for days after that, and I was like, thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> but that's the kind of movie, that's a good gateway drug to horror, because it's not totally intense horror. Yeah. You know, it's not like he showed you... The thing. You know, or yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He started you on Creepshow, so that's good, because then you would have had nightmares for a month instead of a few days. So, so that's good. What do you guys, since we're talking about 1982 with the Red and the Con, what do you guys think of the Wrath of the Con from 1982 as opposed to the J.J. Abrams remake? Then did it come down? Because I know you guys are Star Trek guys. I'm just curious on your opinion. One versus the other. My mom always said if you can't say something nice... Oh, you're probably at the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, Star Trek Two does everything right for the right reasons. And it thrives on restrictions. I mean, it's a movie that only costs you know, $11, $12 million. I mean, they redid the dress, the Enterprise Bridge to shoot the Reliant. I mean, they didn't have a lot of money. It was produced by the TV division for features. Uh, and, and yet, that's the movie we continue to talk about. Into Darkness had the opposite of that. It had all the money in the world, and uh, it didn't have a script. And at the, end of, at, at the end of the day, you know, you can't, you know, house does not stand without a strong foundation. And I mean, when Nick Meyer did in 10 days, writing that script, I mean, 10 days, 
to keep that movie afloat, he had to turn around a script and you know, rewrite the Jack Soward, Sam Peoples draft. It's a miracle what he did. I mean, next, next you know, I think the, the great 10 day rewrites, you have Nick Meyer rewriting Star Trek II and you rewriting X-Men First Class in 10 days. That was the other, like to me, a miracle. It took the Starfleet Corps of Engineers two years to write the script for Star Trek Into Darkness. It took Nick Meyer 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's no comparison because you're not, you're not, there's no fundamental understanding of what made Star Trek II work. You're just parroting or parroting scenes. It's, it's, it's the difference between how Terry Metalis gets why Star Trek works, which is why when they do moments in Picard that honor the movies or Next Generation, they get it, right? He, he gets it. And, um, and in, no Into Darkness didn't get it. No. It's not earned. You know, it's not earned. And if it's not Shatner doing it, who wants to see it? That's right. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, we obviously have strong feelings about it. And I want to thank you for coming because GalaxyCon has just been terrific. And I think that um, everyone who works here genuinely cares about the genre and the fans and, and genre history. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not... I mean, they're trying to kill you. I'm not getting verklempt. I'm actually just choking. But uh, we're very appreciative for them having us, and it's been a great weekend, and thank you, Richmond. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> thank you, guys. Well, that was a good time in Richmond, wasn't it? I, I had a great time, and I think the panel was uh, fun, too. Yeah, I, I don't want to start about all those great restaurants we're at because it makes me hungry. That's right. Talking, talking about that Indian place and the Cuban place and the steaks and the steak. And, uh, I and mean, we, we, at least we got, a, we got our uh, reservations for Raleigh. The great martinis. Oh, yes. Well, you had you had a few of those. I had a few. Do you uh, know where we're staying in Raleigh? Have they contacted you yet? I haven't gotten anything about the hotel yet. We're staying somewhere very safe. Yeah. Is it safe? It's safe. Oh, yeah. It's very, very, <laughs> very safe. Yeah, very safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm, I, the thing I think is the coolest, and, and you're going to laugh in this whole um, documentary, is um, Night Shift. Because we got Ron Howard and Henry Winkler talking about Night Shift. Not only does 1982 have all of these wonderful genre films, but it has peak comedy. Prostitution. Hmm? What are you kidding? What is this? We can say it. We're big kids now, right? If there's one person in Hollywood who lives up to his reputation as one of the nicest men in Hollywood, it's Ron Howard. He got his big break with Roger Corman directing. In 1982, you really see what a fine director he's going to become with Night Shift. It has a premise that probably would never get greenlit today. These two guys who work in a morgue end up becoming pimps. A real comedic tour de force. Pimps? Are you saying we should become pimps? Pimps is an ugly word. We can call ourselves love brokers. So I was doing the Fonz on Happy Days. I had done the first seven years with Ron Howard. And Ron said, I'm thinking of being a director. What do you think? I said, Ron, if you wanted to be a brain surgeon, whether I needed it or not, I would be your first patient. Well, my contract for Happy Days was, was up. And while I loved the people on the show, it was holding me back a bit. Now, I was making films. I'd made four films while I was on Happy Days. They were television movies or the, the Roger Corman movie, which was made on a very fast schedule. Grand Theft Auto, directed by and starring Ron Howard. I could just see 
that one of the reasons why I was struggling to get feature films was that they didn't believe I really had time. They really thought of the feature directing as a sort of hobby. I felt I needed to take a leap and make a commitment. We're doing Happy Days now. I don't have a Ron Howard. My brother, my acting partner. There was a breakthrough from the studio. They said, CBS will pay $5 million in pre-sale for Night Shift if Henry Winkler stars in it with you directing. This combination is something that they're willing to invest in. It was very important to me to make an R-rated movie initially. I didn't want people to think uh, this was the guy from Mayberry and Arnold's Diner. So Brian Grazer's idea, which was sort of inspired on an article that he'd read in the New York Times, that a couple of guys had been caught running a prostitution ring out of the New York City morgue. His concept so fit the bill in terms of the kind of irreverent, sexy, high concept that I was looking for. And um, we got Henry Winkler's home movies he gave us. He hadn't even had developed. We That's actually awesome. developed, developed them, Ellisonied them, and it was shown them for the for the first. So, like to me, that's really cool because, um, you know, Night Shift is not a movie that's gotten a lot of love over the years, um, even though it's great and funny and crazy and politically incorrect. But um, I think that uh, you know what we really tried to get deeper into stuff was where there aren't great bonus features and DVD special fe special features. Like, how do you top what Charlie did on Blade Runner? You, Blade Runner, you can't actually if you're giving it 15 minutes of love in a, you know, four-hour series. But um, it, it was the chance to focus on things like Beastmaster and Night Shift and, you know, Tron and a lot of these movies that Poltergeist that, that haven't gotten that kind of attention. So that was, um, that was really cool. I particularly really like cool. the point where uh, Michael Keaton raises up his tape recorder and says, dress up like a bat and fight crime. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was finally clean and sober. No, that's yes. That was his movie after Batman. Um, was that Glenn Gordon Karen who did that? Or was it? Yeah, because Paul, uh, the guy did. I, I think it was. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll trust your know. judgment on it. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. And by the way, if you liked us talking about all these movies that aren't necessarily Star Trek, you should check out um, the 430 movie. We're currently on Summer Hiatus, but um, if you haven't heard it, it's all new to you, so you might as well listen to it because it's great. <laughs> it's great. And Naomi finally caught up on 430 movie. movie her and she was my wife, and she was saying how great the new season was. I said, thank you. That's good. She liked it. That was a, that was a ringing endorsement, so that was, that was nice. And... Uh, by the way, since uh, this is dropping uh, the first week of July, I think we would be remiss if we didn't wish a very happy birthday to our friend and collaborator and crime and Trek's extraordinary art document. Happy birthday, Darren. Well, thanks, happy, happy birthday. I'm tired <laughs> of saying Shirley Best of Times. And I got to tell you, when I have a birthday, everyone says Shirley the Best of Times. Okay, I get it. It's been, I've been having a lot of these. Because you like I, that Star Trek thing. Yeah, so we got to come up with something new to tell people on their birthday because, you know, um, the Star the Star Trek's are getting a little old. It is forty years. Forty one. They don't get old for me. I love them. Yeah. Whenever whenever someone thinks enough to give me a Star Trek quote for my birthday, I embrace it. God damn it! You know what I love that you both gave me a tale of two cities for my different birthdays. That's true. That was, that, that was cool. Cool. That was, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I gave you a thing of Romulan ale. You did. At the same time. Me, you yeah. did. And of wow. course, uh, 
But my favorite thing that you ever gave me was that Casablanca Letters of Transit. That to me well, was, that was special, last really year, special. Yeah. I know. Hopefully, the hopefully the uh, gendarmes haven't caught up with you yet. They haven't. They've worked. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, they, the I fooled is, everyone. Fun. Aaron didn't know why he was giving you those letters of transit, but <laughs> why yes, not? He I, was just going to give them to you. Unfortunately, the last time I went to Bulgaria to film, they didn't understand why I was handing the letters of transit. It would, did not help. <laughs> they, were, they were like, no, we need to see something something else. So, a little, uh, little more recent. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is, this is, this is, this is true. Uh, man. We've been we've been talking to you but especially Star Trek Two for a long time on on the show. Although I think we did more episodes on motion picture than we ever did on Star Trek Two, isn't it? Isn't that true? Not with adding all the 1982 best geek year ever uh, no. episodes. I love those. I love those motion picture episodes we did. They were good. Yeah, and they will be again when people listen to them again. Yeah, yeah no, that was that was, that was really really or for the first special. Time. And it's funny we talked with the uh, our guest last episode, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Brian, and of course Julian, and they were talking about you know wanting to take Star Trek Two or Blade Runner, the theatrical cut, to a desert island. I have to say, if I could only take one Star Trek trick movie with me, Desert Island, I think it would be Star, Star Trek: The Mushroom. To be honest, really, I just well, find that's, it that's your prerogative. I just yeah. find it my prerogative as commanding officer, but I just um, I find it um, I just find it the most eminently watchable i i don't it's not that i don't love star trek 2 i do but um i just there's something something about the motion picture even as a kid when it was when it was on ho all the time and then you vhs the abc cut i just i could watch that thing constantly i i did watch it constantly yeah i knew you did <laughs> i knew Darren's you did like, you're activating my ptsd now yeah yeah <laughs> that's true that's true um Man, I really hope something happens with Star Trek Five one day because this luck and build conversation we had just reengaged my passion for Star Trek Five. Yeah, that and, guy was awesome. And of course, my lucite frame of Star Trek Five. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so um, just yeah, he he was awesome. We got to get back to him on uh, having him back on the show to do, uh, to talk some more about, uh, if, if we ever get to do uh, star Trek five, I will replace the logo on the movie with that trailer logo. Cause I think the trailer logo is way better. Yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be great. It's not going to happen. I, but I, there I, we are. I, I know. I mean, look, I, uh, we, we don't normally talk about star Trek current events on the show, but let's, let's real quickly. What do you think about this news about prodigy boys? I don't know yet. Yeah. I think it it doesn't bode well for Star Trek as a whole, yeah. Uh, because it it seems to me that that means that they are making some serious decisions, and it may not include uh, future Star Trek at all at this rate. So we don't know. The other thing you have to consider, well, there's a couple of things. That number one, um, Prodigy was an experiment. It was aimed at a market segment that you don't usually associate with. Uh, with Star Trek, number one, also. Uh, that audience segment doesn't tend to uh, get their own subscriptions to Paramount Plus. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that's, that's probably part of it. Um, Plus it was imagine. on Nickelodeon, right? Yeah, it was also on Nickelodeon. It was like, th that show was basically, it was, it was not cheap. Um, and it was being given away. And I don't, and I imagine that it just wasn't justifying um, the the subscription change to like to continue just to hold it and have it sit on the servers. That said, 
you know what? We I like to be philosophical about this stuff. We live in a world, and we have always lived in a world where shows we love get canceled, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Prodigy got canceled, man. Star Trek got canceled. Yeah. Uh, so funny but- you say that, Ash, because my feeling was similar. I empathize with, with a lot of these who feel a terrible sense of loss because we've all had shows that we love that were canceled. Um, obviously, there are people who love and adore that show and feel very passionate about that. And there are a lot of people we like who worked on those shows. And yep. I'm sad to see them lose gainful employment. Um, on the other hand, these people are saying Paramount, Paramount Plus is evil or whatever. It's like they have the, have the analytics there's a reason that they're doing this, right? So obviously they feel taking the tax break uh, is better than leaving it on the service, which basically means that it probably didn't have that many eyeballs. And as you said, it was an experiment um, to attract a younger audience to Star Trek. And I wouldn't be surprised if the demographic was much older older than they had hoped for that show. Yeah. Because and, I think that a lot of- certainly, as that show went on, you know, it- it started, I, I believe, becoming less about that that market segment that it was supposed to cater to, and more, I think, uh, towards its its traditional market segment. And that, kids don't care about Captain Janeway. They simply don't, um, and none of that stuff is stuff that would scan for them yeah. at all. Yeah. Like whatever other merits or debits that the show might have, I think that's an issue. But here's where, here's the good news to me: if you're a fan of that show. Is, you know, when when Paramount Plus says we're taking this off our service and we're taking this off our other free service and whatever that, it doesn't mean that they are deleting the show. Um, you know, uh, if anything, the history of television has shown us that these things then t- tend to uh, mm-hmm. appear in different venues, either yeah. on physical media or on a different service, because then you can make your money back a bit yeah, by exactly. selling the The only way they like, can make their money back is to sell it to someone else to show. That's well, exactly and that's, right. that's the key to the whole thing, because let's face it, I mean, we've all seen, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of shows like I Loved, like Glow, which had already been renewed mm-hmm. and were in production, yep. were scrapped completely. Yep. They made a point of saying they will finish post-production on this. And we've had friends who've had shows at, we won't say who and where, who've had shows that were in production and that were part down the line that got scrapped, scrapped, never light of uh, uh, a broadcast, right? These guys, at least they're getting a chance to finish the second season. It will yeah. show up somewhere. They're not going to finish post-production and then not sell it. And yep. at the very least, Star Trek always has had a certain threshold on home video. They'll probably at some point maybe put it out on home video at the very least or put it on Nickelodeon or sell it to, to Amazon or Netflix. Netflix knows, but what, what, it is, what it is more, or maybe it's not, is what it says about the state of the franchise that they probably realize there is no growing this franchise. This is what it is. Star Trek is not going to become more popular. It right. could become less popular, but it's not going to, they're not going to suddenly find an audience that doesn't exist for it. Right. Yep. So and that endangers future shows. It endangers existing shows. And um, um, it, you know, they're changing this. It was bound to happen. Ta- the Taylor Sheridan shows outperform Star Trek immeasurably, and that's what they're putting their chips on. Yeah. And also now they're folding Showtime in. So the whole platform is skewing older and more edgy than Star Trek. Well, and look to to be devil's advocate here. Um, I think my main problem with Prodigy was that it wasn't about human beings. Yeah, uh, and and Star Trek is about human beings. That's yep. the core of its of its meaning, at least to me. 
Uh, the human adventure is just beginning. The human adventure. It's not about puppets. It's not about you know creatures. It's about human beings, and you know whether or not the the uh, characters are uh, representation of certain human being types. That's another thing. But I'm talking about the basic story structure and and uh, and quality of the uh, of the show. It's uh, it just didn't it didn't connect with me on that level. Yeah, it is literally Star Trek is literally about human potential. Yeah. And you know, human adventure, adventure. That, that our species has uh, to be good, yeah. uh, to be more than what we are, to explore the stars, to explore whatever and become smarter, to to leave things better than we found them. And it is specifically about our species. It's not about metaphors for our species. And it's the same us. thing would have happened if it had been a Klingon only show. Correct. You know, that they've talked about many times. That's not the point of Star Trek either. The point right. of the Klingons is to show a difference between human beings and another race and to see how we interact and try to uh, get along with these other aliens. And, you know, that's what Star Trek is about. Yep. That's why we are aboard her. That's sure. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting perspective. There's, you know, obviously there's a lot of, um, uh, low IQ voters who are just like, God, I well, I mean, not, not even calling them that, but there, there's a there's a bunch of people who enjoy the show, and that's fine. I'm glad for them. I hope I hope that they find other things to enjoy as well. Uh, I just don't agree. Yeah, and, no, and I, find that show. I think it's, it's a very well written show. I think you know, but I I think that you know what we talked about is this was a show that was designed to be uh, Star Trek Delivery Death Life to a, a younger demo, and yeah. I don't necessarily see how that. Uh, was the case. I do. I feel for these people because we've all had shows we love that were of canceled, course. which yeah, is terrible. But there's a fundament, fundamental understanding in some of the things they're being saying, they're very saying, very nice about the way television works, the way things work on a starship, and particularly the way that a streamer operates. Um, and, you know, there's a sense that, well, they should just leave it on the air because we like it. And, you know, that's not how television works. Right. We've all had shows canceled. Maybe I'm just a little more. Uh, anesthetized to it because we've all had shows canceled that we love that we worked on. You know, um, um, you know, I tell I totally understand that somebody who's a fan of the show would would be upset that it's uh, that that it's over. You know, I can't believe it's over. Um, and like I said, a lot of good people lost work, and uh, I think they gave it a hundred percent. I think I think the people who did that show knew and loved Star Trek, and I give them so much credit for that. For that, it's just not it, it's not necessarily something that I I watch on a weekly basis but it's not made for me and right. but I, I think they did a, a yeoman's job of, uh, of 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 putting that show together and i'm, I'm sorry that uh, it's not going to continue yeah yeah but you know what else is not going to continue this episode because we're about to wrap up <laughs> and uh wrap thank you up, all for joining us joining us we hope you have a great uh, um Great holiday weekend, um, and we appreciate you joining us for this Summer of Trexperts. And speaking of the Summer of Trexperts, if you haven't heard, the Trexperts are about to be launching a Kickstarter for new Trexperts project where we, Darren, Ashley, me, it'd be like the good, the bad, and the ugly. In, in fact, it's like a Shatner thing. It's a flying Kickstarter. Yeah, it's a flying Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And uh, joined by our good friend, Rob Barnett, and a gaggle of galactic stars, we'll take you on a tour to the future as we go to many of the great locations where Star Trek filmed over six decades. From Bronson Caves to Vasquez Rocks, the Golden Gate Park to the Valley of Fire, 
will take you on the ultimate trip, a trip as experts can with our trademark, trademark of expertise, humor, and trekucation. Keep listening to the Trexperts <laughs> and social channels for all the exciting details. We hope you'll be part of the adventure. See, the only you'll way find out all about it. And you'll all find out, out all about Yep. And, right. uh, and there you go. go. So and there's nothing more. Nothing we can do about it. He's gone. So uh, I want to thank uh, you guys. And hopefully you'll join us on our social channels and in Glorious Trek and Glorious Trexperts. Uh, and rate us five stars where we listen to podcasts. And of course, you can subscribe to the Trexperts at Trexperts Plus dot com and uh, uh get exclusive episodes of our deck 78 podcast podcast before one maybe you'll be the coolest person on your block so uh there you go and join us at one of our upcoming conventions whether it's in raleigh north carolina in july san diego comic-con or in austin labor day weekend and of course in las vegas for the mother of all cons 57 year mission convention uh from our friends at Carenza Creation. It's happening again in August. It's happening, it's happening again. And uh we'll be there. In Quebec. And we're Sorry. doing a bunch of panels. We're gonna be joined by our good friends uh the Tiptons, the brothers Tipton. Um and I'm gonna reach out to uh um our friend uh, Doug Drexler about joining us for our Have Gun Will Travel panel. I think it would be only appropriate to have Paladin himself join us and um and a lot of other good fun that we're planning for for uh vegas of course uh it is a scooter it is a scooter i'm hoping to hire some personal security to uh walk with me around the convention to keep the scooters away from me including other more earnest fans they're floating avatars <laughs> that are constantly spinning around mark deflecting scooters <laughs> i can use they them go. drones they would just fire do not enter right <laughs> do, do not enter the vicinity stay away hey um but of course gifts are always welcome as well um if you if you would if you would <laughs> because i'm just remember when dr ken gave us he gave us the uh the whiskey that yeah the, but he the, did the, it the, without the, being prompted i know yeah. but, but but he was a class guy I'm talking well, for the yeah. less classy people. If they See, you're go... you're just making enemies left and right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's okay. Well, I'm the obnoxious one. Remember, you're better off talking about Darren. Darren number. is the sweet guy celebrating his birthday. We all love, love him. Could you not love Darren? Ashley is the intellectual, the erudite guy. He's a little unapproachable he? because he's a little, 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 little. He, you know, you know, he's like, is he on the spectrum? No, probably not. But he's just very brilliant. brilliant. He's the erudite <laughs> one that likes poop jokes. And then, yeah. and then there's the obnoxious one. So it really is the good, <laughs> good the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I'll put me in this one. I'll be Eli Wallach. It's okay. I can take it. Oh. So anyway, anyway, yeah. So we'll do the the action, the documentary. It'll be like the It'll be like the go see Darren, and he is. He's and then we'll see the bad. You'll be like Lee Van Cleef, Ashley. That's pretty cool. And I can be Eli Wallach. Wow. Because Magnificent Seven. So I think it's cool. Anyway, enough about that. We're gonna go now. But but. Uh, <laughs> on behalf of Ashley, Darren, and myself, myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on tracking and gloriously, of course. And don't forget to watch 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever on the CW Saturday, July PM, with an encore, an encore present Tuesday, July 7th. <laughs> and engage. Mm -hmm.